Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami. I'm joined by Danny Moses today. In a little while, Dan Nathan and I are going to have a conversation with Urian Timmer, the Director of Global Macro at Fidelity. You know what, Danny? Today we're going to talk about the J.P. Morgan analyst talking about oil demand destruction beginning. Destruction, destruction. What's that function? I like what you right. did there. We're going to talk about consumer credit crunch. What does it mean? And you're going to give us an update on your genius sports. We're talking trade. about a lot of other stuff too. What do you read? When you read off well. like a preview teleprompter, well, no, that's fair. No, that's fair. And you're like not starting with a song; you're well, starting with a lyric so, from the '70s. So here you go. What in the hell is going on? 1969. The year I was born. Let it bleed, Rolling Stones. You remember the album? I was young. But what does that yeah. mean? I was young. I, I mean, was zero. So, but yeah. So one of my favorite Stone songs, and I am a fan of the Rolling Stones. I think they're not in my top five bands, but they're definitely in my top ten. I would say. But listen to this lyric. Oh, a storm is threatening my very life today. If I don't get some shelter, yeah, I'm gonna fade away. Of course. The opening lines of Give Me Shelter. And I mention that, Danny, because there is a storm threatening in a number of different ways out there. How are you, by the way? I'm good. I was in a Bob Marley kind of mood. And no, I haven't smoked anything. And no, I haven't. I, did I even, you said that before I even One looked at love, you. Because we're together. Let's get together and feel all I right. I feel fine. I want to be positive today yes. about the negativity. Okay, let's be positive about the negativity. Okay. But it's hard to dismiss the fact that for a myriad of different reasons, there is a storm of threatening. Now, sometimes those storms get blown out to sea, like mm. some sort of cold front comes in and knocks it out to the Atlantic. This storm's circling around the globe, this touching every central bank headquarters. around. Yes. yes, it is. And as we talked about a number of weeks ago, we had a podcast that we entitled Turning Japanese. You may recall that. And on that podcast, we suggested that dollar yen was probably headed to 150. And lo and behold, Danny Moses, earlier this week, we saw exactly that. Now, the Bank of Japan, in their way, will be jawboning and doing what they can. But I think that Barbara Eden, see what I did there, is out of the bottle. Genie. To think they didn't intervene in some form? Oh, no. They absolutely did. We'll find that out later. We may not find out at all. But yeah, hits 150, then immediately goes to 148.50, right? 
A lot of things are obviously trading on not just that, right? The U.S. dollar, dollar destruction, what's been happening. But let me tell you this. We had a lot of Fed governors speak this week, okay? And, again, you can trade this mm -hmm. on Fed fund futures on the CME. We're a 22% chance of a hike. I, I really find it hard to believe the next meeting. I, I really believe that it's zero, okay? But one of the particular Fed governors, ahead of the Chicago Fed, Austin Goolsby, mm. said that he remains optimistic that the Fed is on a golden path to the mother of all soft landings. I thought that was an exquisite quote. And I will tell you this, if they pull that off, it will be the mother of yeah, all soft 100%. landings. What are they looking at? What are they doing? They are The lag effect has been here and it's pronounced for the last, I don't know, six to eight weeks. We are seeing it work its way into the system. It has worked. The long end of the curve, which they don't control, mm -hmm. is doing the dirty work for them. How are they not acknowledging or recognizing it? Now, I said in the last Fed meeting, that Powell was not talking about the economy. He was, talking about, he was talking about the stock market. 100%. And now the stock market has come in. We're, we've corrected. I don't know what the exact amount is. Maybe by the way, give it to me. By the yeah. way, a little housekeeping. Congratulations, because a number of weeks ago, I think it was in early September, when the S&P was probably a couple of hundred handles higher than it currently is now, you entered into a wager with Tom Lee for charity, Yes. Where you said uh, the S&P 500 would be lower by month end from that current point. He obviously said higher. You were correct. So please continue because talking about the Fed not acknowledging, I think they know exactly what's going on. I think they find themselves in an extraordinarily awkward position where they realize that the economy is clearly going to weaken, slow down. Something is clearly going to break. But if they were to reverse course now, other things would start to break. So what are they going to do? They're picking, I think, the same way the ECB is doing, they're picking what they perceive to be the lesser of two evils. I'm not going to give them credit no, at anything. No, and no, the reason I, I say no that is there. we were a week from Silicon Valley Bank destruction, and they weren't acknowledging or didn't think there was an issue. Those same issues are now are pervasive now back into the bank stocks. We see how they're trading. Obviously, <laughs> the third quarter didn't end well for them, and we're going to hear from them. We'll start to hear from them, I think, at the end of next week, potentially the following week, from the banks on what they have to say. But Steve Eisman, my former boss and partner, who doesn't tweet a lot, but when he tweets, it certainly mm -hmm. this is pretty common sense. He says, almost all consumers buy stuff on credit, from solar panels to homes to cars, et cetera. With a tenure at 4.75%, stocks in all these consumer-related sectors cannot work. And my point is this. The Fed thinks that the job market is strong enough mm -hmm. to absorb. The job market is somewhat backwards-looking. The real time is what's happening with 100%. rates right now. I'll have a little anecdote from my mother. Susan Moses, who's a travel agent, going to give us a little look into what's been happening. Is she calling in? in no, she won't call in. But by the way, from time to I time, want you, this is a podcast. She will be at the crab's table with us when you 100%. and I go. Okay. So this is a podcast, Danny Moses. Yeah. Dan Nathan. Yes. Guy Adami. I'm, that's me speaking, by the yeah. way. Who's your mom's favorite of that triumvirate? Guy Adami. Now, you say that grudgingly. It's also Dan's mother's favorite, is Guy Adami. Oddly enough. Right. You're everybody's mother's favorite. Well, it's, it's nice. Mother's little helper. Yeah. Again, with Rolling Stones. But it's important to point out, Steve Eisman in that tweet, it's pretty simplistic, but nobody seems to want to acknowledge it or recognize it, that so much of this economy is driven by the entire economy Listen, to a large extent. I, I, I've said this until I'm blue in the face, and it happened during the housing crisis. Until it started to impact the people that manage money right. themselves in Boston and New York, it wasn't real. So I know that sounds so simplistic and maybe a little ignorant. Because they should be looking at data, but it's almost like I'm not seeing it myself, so it must not be true. It's not something that you see, especially if you're affluent, that you're going to see 
day to day, but it's happening. And I got good news and bad news. Oh, I want to hear the bad news first. The bad news is that the Fed still has $8 trillion on their balance sheet, of which treasuries are $5 trillion and mortgage-backed securities are 2 and a half trillion. So what's the good news? It's down a trillion dollars, guy. <laughs> so, so just to put that in perspective, that's quantitative tightening we're talking about. Mm-hmm. They let these assets run off instead of reinvesting them. The natural runoff is $95 billion a month of what they're letting run off. So they are doing it. Right. They're probably hopeful that they can keep doing it. I don't think they can do it for a long period of time. They told us this at the end of 2021. And that's why kind of people front ran the mortgage backed security trade. Right. But now Greg Ip wrote a great piece on The Wall Street Journal today. And it was titled Rising Interest Rates Mean Deficit Finally Matters. Yes. We've been talking about the deficit for a long time. So you can do the math all you want. We're approaching 34 trillion. The deficit's going to be two trillion. You can do it all you want. All of a sudden it matters. Right. Because you're underwriting. United States of America as a corporation, right? And I will tell you this. There's been a lot of talk about how corporate credit spreads have not, some of have not widened. Mm-hmm. You know why that is, Guy? Because there's a lot of U.S. corporates which are in much better shape than, than the government. Than the government 100%. And so my point is this on the QT is there are so many sellers of fixed income who in their right mind would step in front right now, especially forget about what inflation is telling you. Don't use that as a signal. And the other thing is, if rates do start to come in, yes, if the 10-year yields come in, I, the market will rally because it will have that just have that reaction. But I think that may be a trap as well, and we can talk about that. But there's a lot of things happening. But let's go back. 2008, if you're 35 years old or 38 years old or younger right now, all you know in the professional markets, or even 40 years younger, zero interest is zero interest rates. That's, the economy doesn't work. And Steve's point is it doesn't work, for, and it doesn't. And I just don't know why. Maybe you think the Fed's being coy and they're... I don't... I'm, I, I want to be clear. The only credit that I will give them is, and, and I don't know if you disagree, it doesn't matter. We'll have the conversation is, at least in November of 2021, they finally acknowledged that something had to be done. And they finally set the pendulum in motion to try to normalize things and reduce the balance sheet. I want to be crystal clear. I am no fan of the Federal Reserve. I am no fan of central banks in general. Again, I've said this. I'll say it again for the new listeners. I think of the many villains of the 21st century, central bankers, specifically our Fed, are at the top of the list, not because they're bad people, not because they're malicious people, but because of the hubris associated with them and the fact that they've set us on a course where I think it's very hard to recover from. And if you think about this, you know who gets screwed in zero interest rates environment? Middle and lower class. You know who gets screwed on the way back to normalization? Those same people. You know why people are pissed off? Because the chasm in this country between the have and the have-nots continue to grow. I think one in six people or something like that are food insecure. That's actually a term. That is heartbreaking in a country in an economy where there should be nobody that's food insecure. And that's not some socialist bullshit. That's just because we're a wealthy nation. We should be at that level. What bothers me is there are experienced money managers slash talking heads slash people out there who are crying right now about these higher rates and mm-hmm. saying it's a, you know, we're talking about the long end. We talked a couple weeks ago and I myself had gone back and look, five to six percent is normal tenure. 100%. Okay? Especially when you have the growth. But we've been talking about before that we know that the short end of this curve being jacked up and the long end moving higher is going to slow down growth, right? So everyone's just like, I can't take it. I can't take it. Get used to it because mm-hmm. this is what we have to have the reset, right? To have the recession. Again, don't be so scared of it. 
react to it and trade in the environment. Take what it gives you, right? 100%. You know? so. Now, you brought up the Fed's bet, and I don't want to get too wonky here. Go ahead. But this is, I think, important for context. The Fed should have a balance sheet depending on money supply. Their balance sheet shouldn't be zero. It shouldn't be $9.5 trillion. It was $4 trillion pre-COVID, but it should, but exactly. shouldn't have been that either. But that was QE1, QE2. So QE, yeah. I guess the question that I have is, shouldn't be nine and a half it probably at four it's probably too low but why what do you mean i think based on money supply and based on the well, economy there should be something out there but again what are they trying to get it down to and will they be able to you alluded to it earlier no they're not going to be able that's to get exactly it down right. because we are because of what greg Gip was talking about and the people that we've talked about this is they're competing against the treasury mm -hmm. Treasury's issuing they have to issue we have a two trillion dollar deficit how do you fund that and then we have japan and then we have china what are they going to do to shore up their currencies, right? What are they going to do? They hold a lot of U.S. treasuries, right. the two largest foreign holders. And I've said before, if we get to a point where we question the credit worthiness of the U.S. and it shows itself, right, through those rates, we're in much bigger trouble than worrying about the, the stock market and so forth. So it's, it's not a pretty picture. And I do believe, I've said this before, we can move on from this. You will see a, a, a pause in quantitative tightening. And I believe you will also see the SLR BEs in terms of the requirement that the big banks have to hold capital against treasuries. I think those are the two things that will happen. I think we're 300 S&P points away, mm -hmm. potentially looking at that. So let's see how this thing plays See, out. I would push back and say, yes, you're right. I think the level in the S&P is probably more like eight to 900, if not a thousand handles lower. I okay. think that's where the Fed put right. is. Well. I think the Fed put exists in the form of the unemployment rate, somewhere between four and three quarters and 5%, which clearly we're nowhere near today. Or- the credit markets the guy. seizing up. And by the way, and I want you to opine, we saw something this week we haven't seen in quite some time. The HYG, the high yield index, yeah. really took a leg lower for the first time in a while. I'm pointing it out, not to trade it, but it's something folks should be watching. This was hovering around 74 and a half, 75, seemingly for the entirety of the year. We had a huge move down to the 72 handles, which you say, that's not a big deal. It's not a big deal if it was a stock. For this index or this ETF that doesn't move, it actually was a bit of a big It's probably deal. used as a hedge. People buy Perhaps. You know, puts on it, credit funds do that. But I hear what you're saying. But, God, we're not 800, 900 points away. We are if it happens in a straight line. But if the cause of the S&P to move lower continues to be higher rates and the mm -hmm. belief that the Fed's not done, we're not 800, 900 points away. Because there are things probably teetering now yeah. with the leverage in the system that's out there that we're going to start to see some things blow up here. And I think we're seeing them in slow motion, and I think people are holding their breath. And I'm not claiming that we're going to blow up. I'm not saying anything like that. But just acknowledge that things are slowing. Acknowledge that the Fed is done. And again, that may be bullish for some people. And I, I want to talk about gold for one second. Please. Because just get this thing out of the way. I'm a gold bull. You're a gold bull. 100%. I've seen what it's done. It's broken down technically. I've said it. For, I'm a buyer on weakness. I will continue to be a buyer on weakness. I am shocked again that Bitcoin's performance relative to gold and people that want to use that, the new generation of traders of the instability in the markets and good for crypto people, right? Bitcoin has been incredible performer, I would well, say. Well, there's been a resilience to it's, it. But it's really been in its strong hands, it feels like, the way yes. it trades. Now, we could wake up and it could be gone, all the stuff happening. But again, I think it's stealing some of gold's thunder. But people, like, I'm not saying it can't go to 1800. Technically, it does not look great here. But again, I'm not selling it. No. And again, what would make the S&P go up from here, Guy, would be rates moving lower or a signal from the Fed that not only are they done, that the Fed fund futures curve starts to pull forward. And what would happen to gold? I think it's up $100 in a period of a day or well, two. That's so it. that's all. I want no, no, to bury, no, the, no, I want to bury it on about, gold. No, you yeah. listen. And I say yeah. this last year, so 2022, central banks in the aggregate bought some 1,221 tons of gold, $70 billion worth of 
which was a record. This year, we're in October, they're on pace to do similar, if not exceed it. A number of different central banks at the top of these lists, not, not that it matters. I have said, and I believe this to be true, I think central banks are hedging their own ineptitude. They see what's going on, and they need to do something about it. The price of gold has languished without question. Historically, a stronger dollar, which we've seen, as we alluded to, and higher yields are not good for gold. I totally get it. It's upsetting to me that I thought somehow in the last couple months it wouldn't have made a difference. It would be different. It clearly wasn't. But what I'll tell you is going back to Japan, going back to what's going on in China, some of the geopolitical stuff that's out here, the Speaker of the House thing, I don't want to talk about politics, but that's potentially a catalyst for gold. And we can talk about the reasons why I think it would be. Gold's going to have its day in the sun. And if it's in the form of yields going back down and the dollar getting whacked, maybe that's it. But something's going to break and you're going to wake up one day and gold's going to be up $100 and people say, what's going on? What happened? And then the next day it's going to do the same thing. And then that Barbara Eden genie is out of the <laughs> bottle again. Fair enough. That's what I think. And people say, ah, you got your tinfoil on, blah, blah, blah. I don't. Oil move. And JP Morgan talking about demand destruction has begun. This is just my opinion. I don't think it's got anything to do with demand destruction. I think it's got everything to do, again, my opinion. Something's blowing up out there. Too many weird moves over the course of a short period of time. Crude getting whacked. Dollar going higher against the yen. These bond moves have been incredible. I think there's some unwind going on, and it's manifesting itself in the crude market. And I'll tell you this, Danny, and you know this for a fact. When participants in the market smell blood in the water in the form of somebody's liquidating, things get really messy really quickly. And we've seen it historically. We saw it in that gas years ago. And I think we're seeing it in crude oil. What I will tell you is, I think, when this liquidation is done, the snapback in crude oil, the commodity, is going to be significant. Thoughts on that? There is a little bit of demand destruction in the form of gasoline consumption. We are mm -hmm. seeing it actually at the pump. People are actually using less gasoline for whatever reason. We also have a forecast for a much warmer winter still that's on the horizon. And you're right. People positioning, you know, oil made a obviously a huge run up here. And let me say this again for people out there. The big brokers that provide lines of credit or leverage to commodity traders, funds out there, credit funds, whatever, they know the positioning of these funds on a second by second basis, right? You guys, obviously, Goldman Sachs would know. They know where they're at risk. So what do they have to do sometimes? They get in front of it, legal front running in terms of the positioning before they're going to do the tap on the shoulder. Hey, long oil guy, you need to take your <laughs> you leverage. You got a problem. Step. You got to take your leverage. Yeah. So point is that it is going to be volatile. But here we are again. I'm not saying it should be as liquid as fixed income, but the volatility in every product in the FIC world, fixed income, currency, commodities, all the stuff that's out there is astounding. And again, without the liquidity being provided by the big banks, because they don't have the same amount of capital they've had before to play middleman and hold these assets for a period of time is just going to create more and more. So stick to fundamentals and you'll be fine. Are you so. familiar with the uh, Barclays Bank? There's a Barclays Center in, in yes, Brooklyn. Yes, there is. It's in Brooklyn, right? Yeah, Brooklyn. Yep. You've probably seen concerts there. Yeah. No. I have seen concerts there. I saw a concert there with Dan Nathan. What did you guys go say? Uh, Lumineers Mount Joy opened literally a week before COVID broke. Did you lose a bet? Is that <laughs> why you had the Lumineers? Wasn't that a kid? They're that, good. They're good. Wasn't They're that good band. Beauty and the Beast? They're good. Some, you know what? Lumineers? Until you try it, no, don't knock it. I don't you know. Try I'm just, you know, I, I there was like a you're... character called Lumineer, I think, the okay. candlestick. I mentioned Barclays. Can't because, wait to see where this is well, going. Well, no. They clearly watch Fast Money. They clearly watch Market Call. They clearly listen to you or just in general, the on the tape podcast because they said this this week only an equities crash can rescue the bond market when they say rescue the bond market that's code for 
yields are going to go lower. And what we have said for quite some time, and now Barclays is figuring this out, in my opinion, there are ways the yields can go lower. At the top of the list would be an, a precipitous sell-off in the stock market that creates a flight to quality or perceived quality in the form of the bond market. Now people are starting to write about this. That wouldn't be particularly good because something would have broke along the way to make yields go lower. Maybe speak to that. I would have thought we'd potentially already be seeing that. Think about the I, right? It's the high yields that cause the equity market to potentially move lower to a point. And then what happens? Do you go go buy your equities after that? Where's the money going to come from? Because people are losing in the 60-40 trade, as we call it, which mm -hmm. happened at 60% equities, 40% bonds are losing in both right now. So it's bonds are selling off, which means yields move higher and equities are selling off. I'm a firm believer that yields are going to pull in with the one caveat, again, back to Greg Ipps thing. If we start to price the United States on a fiscal basis as opposed to an unlimited print capability. And again, I'm, <laughs> I always un underestimate the power of what the Fed can do mm -hmm. and what they're going to do. They're going to do, always they're gonna do something. So what is that going to be, Guy? I don't know. But again, we're several hundred points in mm -hmm. the S&P away from that happening. So that's a logical thing that you think would happen, that if, if money leaves equities, it will come into treasuries. But it's not right now, Guy. People clearly are upset. We've seen in a number of different verticals strike after. We don't have to go down, but United Auto Workers, the actors, the writers, UPS, the whole array of industries. Now, guess what? Kaiser Permanente, 75,000 workers are starting the strike. I don't mention it because we're not trading Kaiser Permanente or any of the insurance companies. I mention it because, again, it's a cost of living thing. People are upset out there. They're not keeping up. And it's well, just a matter of time before that man that continues to manifest itself in the inflation rate. Yeah, that and you're know, going to use temporary nurse staffing, right? If some of these nurses walk off the job. So that's a little bit scary in and of itself, mm -hmm. not understanding the protocols and procedures, even if they're qualified nurses at that particular hospital, whatever. But you're right. It's just another sign of not just issues that we have right now with the country. Again, go back to our opening of this podcast, just on the Fed in general. They're done. They're done because of everything you just mentioned for the last five or seven minutes that, you know, is going to happen here. And listen, the whole travel industry, which is currently mm -hmm. not striking, which I want to bring in these data points that my mother wanted me to mention because Please. I think it's in the consumer this side. This is a portion of the show where your mom makes an appearance virtually. <laughs> yes. But you can be the voice. So she's a kind of a higher end travel agents put together some high end trips for people and she gets customers that repeat that some of them are going to be unaffected no matter what, but she's right. seeing people ask more questions about spending in certain places. She's also seeing in the cruise line industry, which is still very strong, a lot Have of capacity. Have you ever gone on a cruise, by the way? Yes. And I told my mother I'm probably done with that at this yeah. point. But Who'd anyway. You, did you go on? I, I know. We don't need to go there. That could be a whole other podcast. Okay. So I know. I'm itself. just curious. So cruise demand is it, it's still there, but a lot of supplies coming on. Obviously, higher oil hurts so for what that means for the stocks. And then most importantly, that whole thing that happened, Delta on the loyalty program. They got mm -hmm. a lot of pushback. What happened was, and she was saying that during COVID and after, the airlines were so eager to get people back that everyone all of a sudden became qualified in some program, right? So there's too many people. <laughs> so now everybody has entitlement on the thing, right? So what's been going on is the pushback there. But you know, the lower end, middle end consumer, right, I think is now spending less and the higher end consumers asking questions. Again, travel's still very strong. Bookings are strong. But on the margin, things are deteriorating a bit here. Listen, people are going to say you're cherry picking. They can say whatever, whatever they want. Target, as we're sitting here, is trading at a multi-year low. But it's not just, tar and listen, I understand a lot of Target's problems are self-inflicted wounds. Totally get it. But they obviously do cater to a certain consumer. Five below, Dollar Tree, 
dollar gen. The flip side of that equation is your Walmart, which you brought up years ago, which has traded off a little bit lately, but has effectively been trading at all-time highs. That chasm is growing. And why do I mention it? Because I believe the statistic is 70% or so of Walmart's customers now earn $100,000 more. Think about that for a second. You have- Trade what, down. Trade down. So you have a trade down to Walmart. Historically, that trade down from Walmart goes to- a, Now you're having people trading down from Target, from- the, Correct. Where are they trading down to? That's a question that you have to ask yourself in terms of the audience. But I will tell you, it's not particularly good. So again, to use the word chasm again, the having to have nuts in the retail sector are right there for you to see in terms of what the stocks are doing. Yeah, no, it's there and we're seeing it. And there are winners and losers and you're seeing it. And it's pretty clear what's been happening. Walmart has been pretty clear. As a matter of fact, Walmart's now warning a little bit that this Ozampic is causing people not to buy as much food as, as they have been, right? Which is why I don't know if that's a kind of a warning shot that they're giving. I think that's part of the reason for the weakness in the stock, but it's just playing out in real time. So it's, it, it is, it's remarkable. And again, 70% of this economy is driven by people buying things. You have to look at what's going on. Where is the consumer going? What are they spending money on? And what are the knockoff of- Are you setting me up for my rot? Is that what's happening? Well, right? I was trying to, but since you set yourself up- No, is this where we're going? Yes, it Wait, is where we're where going. Where we're going. I want to see if you, well, if no, you remember. You, I, I do remember it. Okay. In 2010, when Dodd-Frank was established out of the financial crisis- This is a government agency, consumer, like consumer something Financial agency. Protection Bureau, yeah. CFPB, okay? And I don't care what your political party is. Everyone should want them looking out for you, right? So what do they do? They go after- people that charge too high of fees, payday lenders, right? So there's something called usury laws, which the max rate you can charge anyone on an annual percentage basis, annual percentage rate, is 36%. The CFPB over the last 12, 13 years has basically put $17.5 billion back into American consumers through fines of some mm -hmm. of these companies, right? Now, there's a huge lobbying group, right? The payday lenders that want to see the CFPB. Sounds like a fun group. The just lenders great group. people, right? Yeah. Think about this. So there was an oral argument in front of the Supreme Court this week, basically saying that the CFPB is unconstitutional because it's funded by the Federal Reserve, not by Congress. I won't go into all the details. Thankfully, the Supreme Court, mostly everybody on the court, basically said, no, we don't see it that way. We think the funding mechanism is fine. We don't know what the end result is going to be, but let me be very clear to people. We are now matters more than ever where these rates are and what that means to protect the consumer. This is not a political thing. This is looking out for the American consumers. Anyone that just says, oh, I want to get rid of the CFPB. Only people that want to get rid of it are the companies that are benefiting from charging late fees, debt collection companies. Go back and look what this agency has done. It protects every single American. So we're talking about a lot of revolving debt guy at very high rates. Mm -hmm. You want them in there in your corner right now. And so everybody should be rooting that the CFPB maintains its function you right sound now. Like, because you sound this like, is my rot for today because it's stuff like that drives me mad. I, listen, you're a man of the people. You yeah. sound like Jack Nicholson now. You want me on that wall. Yeah, no, this is so I, I'm yes. confident that we're going to be okay on this. So it was an appellate court that questioned the, the, the fundamental existence of this thing. Now it's heard by the Supreme Court, but we won't know anything for months. But people, just be, be careful for that. And I love those it. agencies. There are a lot well, of those agencies out there. A lot of acronyms out there, out there yeah. And the fact that we got your mom in on this is I wonderful. Know. Yes. Now, a few times on the show, if you're really paying attention, Danny, because I know you don't really listen. A lot of people in my life, you don't really listen I to I listen me. to everything that you say. I've mentioned the term... Barbara Eden a number of yeah. times because I'm, I don't want to say genie. Yep. 
put that genie in the bottle. I've yep. said Barbara Eden, who, of course, you know, she was an I Dream of Genie, which was a great, by the way, sitcom. Amazing. Back in the- I Just loved amazing. every minute. How of do you come up with something like that? Just incredible. It is amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Some of my mind works. But anyway, yeah. I didn't mention it because you have brought with you a, a few weeks ago. It's actually longer than that. A company with a similar name. Of course, that would be the genius sports. Yeah. And listen, I feel obligated to come back at to it because it's down. Pitched it initially around these levels. It went to eight. It's back. Was it five fifty? I'm pounding the table. They did a secondary offering, all right, where the largest owner sold 20 million shares, muddied the waters a little bit, but I'm going to take a step back and come back to it. Please. It is being directly impacted by currency fluctuations. Their expenses for the most part are in dollars and the revenues come in sterling. GBP. If you look at the chart, sterling's gone from 130 to 120 versus the dollar, okay? That basically mimics the chart. And the reason this is important, again, let's extrapolate that away from Genius Sports for a second. A lot of companies have that same issue. Some benefit from a strong dollar, some get hurt. Mm-hmm. They don't hedge out. Some companies are forced to hedge out. They don't hedge out any of their currency risks because it's they feel over time it's going to pan out. To me, when the fundamentals of a company are strong and a stock sells off on what should be, I believe, some type of reversion that comes mm-hmm. back, it's a buying opportunity. Genius Sports, GNI, is not the only one that's impacted by this, but it's important to point out that I think that has been the main factor in this. What have they done? They have the contract with the NFL to remind everybody they're the data provider to the gambling companies. They create real-time live wagering, create these bets, how many punts they're going to be in a game, how many field goals, right? Because they have the data that they bought from the NFL, the rights to do it. They just launched a product with the NFL called BetVision, which is a low-latency in-game live wagering. I think it's state-of-the-art. I think it's going to take off. So I'm a buyer on weakness of that. But again, what it means, look, in, look at these companies that may be trading off and you can't figure it out for some reason. It could be the strong dollar versus the currency it's that's kind of so out there. So if anybody there from Genius Sports is listening, I'll happily hedge your currency risk. <laughs> but on a side note, yeah. you bring up a great point. Strong fundamentals override everything. And if, in fact, like some of the things that Danny said, if yields start to go lower, stands to reason the dollar will start to go lower against currencies, stands to reason that headwind that you just outlined will actually become a bit of a tailwind. So thank you for bringing that up. You mentioned the National Football League, the league where they play for pay. It's amazing how quickly, once you hit the regular season, how this it just flies by. We have reached week five. Yes. Now, I'll say this, and I think you would agree with this. Something must be wrong with Joe Burrow. Clearly, he's hurt because the Bengals are just god-awful right now. But things can change. Some teams have a god-awful record, but you know there's a light at the end of the tunnel. The San Diego Chargers, or whatever they call themselves now, for example, they're going to turn it around. Mm. The Bengals, I don't know what's going on right now. And the Bears, forget about it. They're just an unmitigated disaster. But as we've reached week five in the league where they play for pay, you're going to bring with you some picks. So, Danny Moses, the floor is yours. All right. Eight and five now. That's a good record. After starting out 0-2. Can I tell you something? Eight and five. You can retire See, on. If you a, knew that you were going to be If you're eight and five, that's okay. tremendous. All right. I, I'm going to go to Cincinnati in a second. But well, let me start with Detroit at home minus nine against Carolina. Right? I think Detroit's going to steamroll them. Right? Mm-hmm. Jameson Williams is back in the backfield for Detroit. Remember, speaking of genius sports, he was gambling on football and basically got suspended or gambling on something. Look, got again, yeah. that's for but another podcast. That's a home game. At the end of every other freaking commercial – is I know. gambling. Get, they have they throw it in your face. Yeah. And you watch a game, they talk about the lines. So I, anyway, I like that line. Minus nine, I think they win by at least ten. Minnesota, okay. They, they had, can't th- lose enough from me. Okay, great. Just I, I just But when they lose, they normally lose close games. I, yes, the, okay. does it, oh, you get style points now in the NFL. Well, you do if you're gambling on Fair it as enough. an underdog. Getting five you. at home against Kansas City. Let me tell you, 
Kansas City did not look great against Chiefs the Jets. Chiefs aren't that good. Okay. They're going into Minnesota on a short week, right, after an emotional game, which, by the way, the Jets probably should have won that game with not a great holding call on sauce Well, there. I mean, okay, so give me five calls, but yes. Give me five at home, Minnesota. Now, stop for a second. Yeah. You're right to bring up the Chiefs. They don't go vertical like they used to. That offense, which was high-powered, that's not as good an offense as you would like to believe. What I have said, for, this is a, one of the gambling rules, mm-hmm. is – Super Bowl winners, you short them the next year. Okay. They don't cover the spread. They, they're under 50%. Kansas City won the Super Bowl. Remember, they lost the opening game to Detroit. Now yes, I do okay. remember. Okay. It was a Thursday night game. Yeah, give me Minnesota plus five. Okay. And I, this is it for me. I'm going to ride Cincinnati one more time. Okay. Ride Arizona that is terrible. Only the Stop Giants could second. come back on it. Hold on for Only a second. Only the Giants come back. Hold on for a second. Yeah. Dallas Cowboys are a good football team. Yes or no? Yeah. I, no, it's a, yes, it's binary. Yes, they destroyed yes, the they Giants. Are. Yes. Arizona beat Dallas. I, I know. No, I'm just saying they're terrible. They're terrible. Yeah, maybe they're ter- okay. They beat the Dallas Cowboys. All right. I'm going to go with Cincinnati because if Cincinnati doesn't win this game, the season's it. over. season's over. And I don't believe their season's over. Okay, fair so enough. So Cincinnati minus three at Arizona. Minnesota plus five at home against Kansas City. And Detroit minus nine at home against Carolina. Those are my picks, guys. In the league where they play for pay. That was fun. When we come back, by the way, Dan, Nathan, and I are going to have a conversation with Urian Timmer, the director of Global Macro at Fidelity. So stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Dan, on December 9th, 2022, we were fortunate enough to have Urian Timmer, Director of Global Macro at Fidelity, join us on the table. Guess what? We're, we're that fortunate to have him back here. We're fortunate. Obviously, we must have done something right because he can go anywhere. He can. And he decided he's going to come talk to us again. Urian, welcome back to the pod. Thank you. Always a pleasure. No, it's our pleasure, Urian. Thanks for joining us. And obviously, a lot's changed over the last 10, 11 months not least of which the move in interest rates, which we'll talk about. But at 30,000 feet, what are we looking at right now as we're in October of 2023? Well, we're actually back to where we were a little bit more than a year ago, right? Remember, the old saying is the Fed's supposed to take the punch bowl away uh, just as the party gets started. Obviously, the Fed did not do that. And that's not to lay blame uh, at their feet. It was the pandemic. Who knew what was going to happen? But 
clearly in retrospect, that combination of fiscal and monetary impulse was very potent. And the Fed did not take the punch bowl away until everybody got wicked hammered, as we say here in Boston. And, and as a result, it's had to do a lot very soon. And in 2022, the message, of course, was the Fed raised the cost of capital. That lowers the present value of future cash flows. So bonds are affected, stocks are affected, crypto, the meme stocks, everything got affected by the removal of that punch bowl. The good news is that the markets have returned to much better value. If you take the inverse of the bond yield and you get a bond PE, in 2020, the PE was like 200. Today, it's 20. So that's a big improvement for the S&P was at 30 times trailing earnings in 21. It's at about 20 times now, so certainly a big improvement. And what happened a year ago when you know, I was on uh, last was that the liquidity and profile started to stabilize, right? So the Fed still does quantitative tightening, but uh, a year ago or so, it started to get offset by technical factors such as reverse repos, the Treasury's cash balance at the Fed, call, called the TGA, and that's kept the liquidity profile pretty stable. And at the same time, the stock market started to pivot away from this higher for longer narrative, which, of course, a year ago wasn't even in place yet, towards the notion of a soft landing, an earnings recovery. Clearly, the sentiment profile at the beginning of the year was much more cautious, people waiting for that other shoe to drop. That's all come and gone. But now in the past month or so, bond yields have risen a lot again, this time driven by a term premium that has gone from negative, which you could argue never really made much sense, to now positive. I think the term premium on the 10 years now, 35 basis points, which is a step in the right direction. But for a stock market that is driven by three, th three things, right? Earnings expectations, interest rates, and the equity risk premium, uh, earnings expectations are now pretty robust, plus 12 next year, plus 12 the year after that. Those are the consensus estimates. One could argue for an economy in late cycle, maybe that's somewhat optimistic. And so then the net at the margin, the valuation picture gets affected by rates, which are clearly moving up, and the equity risk premium, which has been moving down. And that has kept the whole market in limbo. And technically, putting my chartist hat on, it's a really bifurcated market here, right? We know about the Magnificent Seven. I've talked about the Nifty 50 uh, for a long time. It's the Nifty 7 now. The S&P 500 cap-weighted index still looks okay. A pretty healthy recovery from the lows. We just had a sell-off. We're holding 4,200, which is support. But you look at the rest of the market, the S&P equal-weighted index or, or small caps or micro caps are making new cycle lows this week. So it's a very bifurcated market here and a tricky one to figure out. It's funny. Though, all those things that you just mentioned, we've talked about for sure. And I think a lot of people would be, I mean, you're a brilliant man. I think they'd be shocked to see how prolific you are on Twitter. And if you're not following Urian on Twitter, as I've said a number of times, you're doing Twitter wrong. And, you know, you tweeted something, and, I, and this is, speaks to that. At today's stock market party, very few stocks are invited. The gap between the winners, technology and energy, and losers, utilities and real estate, is huge. If the S&P 500 was all tech and energy, it would be 5,000. If it was all utilities and real estate, it would be half of that, which speaks to exactly what you just talked about. Now, I'm trying to wrap my head around a lot of different things here because I'm one of these people that still believes technology is way too expensive. But what does this tell you? You're a historian as well. Have you ever seen this type of chasm before? 
This is a very unusual market. And I think the lesson here is that COVID really did a number on the market cycle, right? So that combination of fiscal and monetary policy impulse that we had in 2020 and 21, you have to go back to the 1940s to get that one-two punch of fiscal plus monetary. Remember, oftentimes when the Fed is lowering rates to zero, not that it's happened that often, and doing QE, it's happening in the absence of any kind of fiscal impulse. This is what happened after the financial crisis. We had two years of big deficits, you know, the TARP program and all that stuff. But in the early 20-teens, the Fed was doing this in isolation. And so it pushes reserves into the banks. The banks then are the arbiters of who it lends to and how much. That was all bypassed during COVID. And so it really caused the market cycle to become harder to analyze. So even in a good day, when we look at market history, and I'm a student of market history, I try to learn from cycles past to see what we can learn about the current cycle, knowing that history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes and you can learn different things from different cycles. Even on a good day, you have a not very large set of analogs, right? I mean, there's been 27 bear markets since 1871. That's not a huge sample size. And even then, they're so disparate that the average doesn't really tell you that much. And so this current cycle is even worse because it's been dominated by these external factors. And so what we see today, I don't know even how much it really means, but what it tells me is that like the original Nifty 50 during the early 70s, and just to, to back up, back in the early 70s, so we had a, the glamour stock boom in 1968. That was a retail speculative bubble. That burst. We had a recession in 1970. Retail left the building. They're like, I'm not investing in stocks anymore. And from 1970 to the peak in 73, before that really bad bear market in 73 and 74, markets were in the hands of institutional investors. And all they wanted to buy were the tried and true proven earnings growers, the blue chips, IBM, Xerox, Colgate, you name it. And those stocks went to extreme valuations relative to the rest of the market. They, at some point near the lows in 74, they traded at double the PE. And we saw a repeat of that, of course, during the tech bubble. But the tech bubble was in a rising tape. Early 70s was in a falling tape. But in both occasions, those 50, those nifty 50 traded at twice the PE of the rest of the market. And so that's become, I think, a playbook that, you know, the, the broad market is held captive by the Fed. Again, cost of capital goes up, present value goes down, liquidity is tight. And so you look at small cap value, you look at the broader market, they're not going anywhere. We've been in limbo now for a year and a half, which is a long time. So investors are flocking to the names that they know and trust that are not cyclical, that have long durations, and the rest of the market is left behind. And so it's a really hard picture to solve because it depends on how, you know, how much staying power that dynamic has before either something breaks and we get that recession or before the Fed decides to pull a Greenspan from 1995 and feel comfortable that inflation has been beaten and that it can give back some of those rate hikes. And that would be 
the ultimate soft landing scenario, but we just don't know the answer yet. You just mentioned your suit of history. Lots of strategists suggest that when the Fed starts lowering interest rates, it's probably not the right time to be buying equities. And especially when you consider how much positive sentiment you're in is wrapped up and let's call it, forget the seven, maybe it's 15 stocks or so. And so when you think about the equal weight S&P, it's down in the year. The Russell 2000, small caps, as you mentioned, are down in the year. We have an S&P that's up, you know, about 11%, a NASDAQ 100 is up about 34%. Those seven stocks make up 25% of the weight of the S&P 500. They make up like 40% or so of the NASDAQ 100. And to your point about valuations, they do trade. You X them out of the major indices. They trade it nearly double the PE, let's say, of everything else. And I'm looking at like, let's just say off the recent highs, okay? So I'm looking at industrials down 10%. I'm looking at consumer discretionary down 10%. Banks down 12%. XHB, that would be home builders down 13%. Staples down 13%. Transports down 14%. Materials and mining stocks down 15. Real estate down 20. Retail down 22. Healthcare down 23. And the utilities down 23% also. So when I think about what's going on under the hood here, we are really limping into Q4 here. Now you could say, again, this is me putting my technical hat on and, and thinking about sentiment, things feel a bit oversold, no doubt about it. And we're going to have some folks throwing the towel and, and, and this and that or whatever. So when you think about holistically what's going on in the stock market over the last couple of weeks, and then you think about what feels like a blow off in the 10-year yield, what do we get to 4.8 or something like that? I get to a point where maybe some folks do start to say, maybe we are in for a soft landing, maybe this recent sell-off in the broad market, and many of these sectors are kind of discounting that. But if the Fed is moving closer closer to a more dovish stance, it's likely because the economy is weakening a bit here. And that might not be a great place to buy expensive, crowded, like growth stocks in, in a moderating sort of economy. Does that all make sense? I know there was a lot. That makes sense. And my hunch is that, so we, we want the leadership to broaden, right? So when you think about historical early cycle bull markets that often follow recessions, and of course we haven't that, at least not yet. Typically, early cycle bull markets are very broad. Small caps outperform large caps. And so my sense is that for the market to broaden, which is what we want to see in a robust bull market, we need the market to advance for the economy to, to advance. And earnings do look like they've bottomed, but we need the Fed to get off of this very restrictive stance. And we don't even really know, just as going off on a tangent, how restrictive the Fed is because we're just making assumptions on what, what is the natural rate of interest, our star? Like, we don't really know what that is in real time. We don't really know where inflation is going to settle. You know, the tips market believes inflation is going to go to two and a quarter and stay there for the next 30 years. Inflation is improving, but the CPI is at 3.6. Core PCE is at 3.9. So we're still north of the Fed's target, but they're moving in the right direction. And if that continues and we get closer to a three, maybe next year sometime, and the economy has weakened enough or slowed enough to please the Fed, then I, I could see a scenario where the Fed pulls a green span and says, you know, we're going to give back the last couple of rate hikes. And I think the market would obviously really welcome that. I think the bond market would, would welcome that. The term premium is back to positive. So that's a good sign. But there's a lot of ifs in that in that statement, of course. And of course, the glass half empty version is that the Fed really is breaking something here or, or is about to. And we do get that recession that everyone was expecting a year ago and that it finally happens and that the earnings picture is too rosy. So it's a tough one. But it, this is a long time for the market to sit around and be in a consolidation or correction. The correction started or the bear market started January 3rd, 2022. So we're 
almost two years in, and that's a long time for the market not to do what it normally does, which is to go up 10% a year, 60, 70% of the time. Yield curve, historic in terms of how um, inverted we've been for the period of time, went from flat 105 basis points inverted, down to about 35, back to 105, 110. And as we sit here today, that yield curve is steepened to either side of like 31, 32 basis points in an environment where 10-year yields are going higher. I know you know this, but for our audience, people call that a bear steepening. Does, is there anything to that? Or again, to use the phrase, is it different this time? So the, the actual bear steepener, which is correct, that's exactly what we're having. Yields are rising and the curve is, is uninverted or getting less inverted. A quick back of the envelope look at what that has meant in history doesn't really tell us. So there's not like a clear inverse correlation between stock prices or valuation and a bear steepener. So on the service, we can't really learn that much from it, but I, this is about the term premium and the term premium, which is the, the, the premium, the, the excess return that investors require when they are committing funds for the long term. So for corporate bonds, this would be a credit spread. For government bonds, it would be inflation risk. The term premium has been negative for a number of years, which really doesn't make any sense other than the market was in the hands of very heavy-handed non-economic buyers, meaning the Fed, other central banks, People's Bank of China, Bank of Japan, uh, and that pushes down this risk premium. And all of those players are gone, right? Nobody's really buying. There is really no marginal buyer. And that's why the term premium is correctly going back to a positive level. So this is, it's healthy, right? This is what really should have happened. But the question is, how much damage does that do? Because again, you look at equity valuation, discounted cash flow model, it's what's the expected gro growth rate in earnings, and you are discounting that by a cost of capital to get you to the present value of those future cash flows. And that discount rate is affected by the risk-free rate, the 10-year treasury, and the equity risk premium. And so I think the good news is that the bond market has reset quite a bit. Maybe we go to five, maybe we go a little bit above five or even five and a half, but we're getting there. We've seen a lot of movement already. And when you think about the bond math, right? So you think about the Barclays Ag or the Bloomberg Barclays Ag, as it's now called, that's the investment grade bond benchmark that most of us use. It has a duration of 6.2 years, and now it has a yield of 5.5%. And so Basic bond math is that if yields go down 100 basis points, you're getting over 11% of return. If yields go up 100 basis points, so that's the 6.2 plus 5.5, so 11.7%. If yields were to go up 100 basis points, you would lose the 6.2, but you would make back the 5.5 because that's your coupon or your yield, and you would lose less than 1%. So the risk reward is now almost 12 to minus 1 on the bond side. And yeah, I don't know about you, but if those were my odds in the stock market, I would be long 200%. So, so it, the, the math is getting better and that's the good news. You tweeted this earlier in the week and I thought this was interesting. A large chunk of the economy seems to have become less rate sensitive. This chart shows how little the rate of existing mortgage stock has risen relative to the rate on new mortgages. And, and again, I, I think that the housing market and the pace in which mortgage rates have gone up, we've never seen anything like that. And we're starting to see a big hit to activity, right? And when I think about 
about this. I also think about some of these large U.S. money center banks, right? That many of them were the beneficiary, right, of the regional banking crisis back in March and April um, from a deposit standpoint. Some of the banks have actually had many of the similar issues, at least the way investors are thinking in mega cap banks, just looking at, let's say, a Bank of America or a Citigroup or the recent weakness in a Wells Fargo. They're looking at like low underwriting activity. They're looking at issues as it relates to their balance sheets. I think one of the reasons for the dramatic underperformance of late, they have many of the same issues, the the kind of held to maturity, mark to market sort of issue. So I think about a sector in the economy that remains very rate sensitive. Help us unpack this a little bit, because in the next week or so, Q3 earnings is going to get kicked off by the banks. What are we discounting right now with the price action that we have seen with the BKX, I think is down 15% since the start of August. It's down 30 some percent from its highs early this year. Give us a sense of like how you're thinking about like the most rate sensitive part of the market. As we talked about earlier, and you look at the, the dispersion of sector returns, utilities and real estate are obviously our, our bond proxies, uh, among other things, and they're way at the bottom. The banks are in the middle. And here it's really a question of which banks are you talking about, right? The mega banks are still in very good shape and their earnings, you know, they, they blew the doors off last quarter, right? So we'll see if they can do a repeat. But the average deposit rate on bank deposits is still 0.55%, even though the Fed is at 10x that number. Obviously, not everyone is keeping their money in kind of this overnight bank account, but a lot of people do. And so the big banks are still able to leverage that. I mean, that's the funding for their loans. And so they're charging market rates, right? The prime rates, what, eight and a half. Mortgage rates are eight. So the spread is enormous. But at the same time, when you look at maybe the smaller regional banks, the community banks, especially, the deposit flight has ended to, to some degree. But there, there is much more pressure to raise the deposit rate to be competitive with money market funds and T-bills, et cetera. And if they don't do that, they are at risk of losing deposits. And either way, their NIMS, their net interest margins are going to be at risk. So no matter what, it seems that the smaller to mid-sized banks lose as long as rates stay high. But the mega banks seem to be okay. And just going back to how you started the, the, the question, large chunks of the economy are relatively immune to what the Fed has been doing. You know, we, we talk about higher for longer. It's really lower for longer if you're a typical homeowner or a corporate. The consumer and the corporate sector have not been that sensitive to what the Fed has been doing. Most of the mortgage stock was refinanced in 2020 and 21, going from adjustable to fixed, locking in 3%. That's a pretty good deal. So unless you have to sell your home, you're not feeling the pain from 5.5% rates. And the same thing with corporates. You know, They pushed out that wall of maturity. They lowered their coupons. So ironically, the most sensitive sector of the economy is the government. They're spending almost a trillion dollars on interest rate costs, and that number is only going up as they have to refinance more and more. Let's take a minute on the consumer, because I, I think that's a good spot. And we haven't even mentioned unemployment, right? So when we think about unemployment at 3.7%, I think by the time most people are listening to this, we're going to have that September um, jobs report. I'm just curious, what are you expecting there? And again, the mortgage situation, the housing situation is one thing, but if the Fed is successful and we 
do start to see the unemployment rate tick up a little bit. And, you know, it's interesting. We had our good friend Carter Braxton Worth on Market Call earlier this week. He was charting the micro, the Russell micro cap sector, and he made the same observation that you made. And Guy, my smart friend over to my left, he just threw it out there that maybe that chart is the thing that might be like something to focus on as we think about the course of unemployment, because we know that small and medium businesses are two thirds of the employment here in the U.S. And so if higher interest rates for longer, okay, are going to have a greater impact on them or their access to credit or the potential for bankruptcy, might we see a consumer under some strain in the not so distant future if we do start to see the unemployment rate get, let's say, 4% or higher? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and when you think about the micro caps and small caps or even the S&P equal weighted index and how they continue to languish, that part of the economy is held basically captive by the monetary policy and the banks, not the mega banks, but the smaller regional and the community banks are obviously very much in the vice of that. We saw that play out in March with the, the banks that failed. And there are other banks that are stronger or they have less exposure to bonds, but they're still feeling the pinch because there's a lot of competition out there for bank deposits. And the deposits, as I said earlier, are the, the fuel for bank loans. And we know that bank lending standards are rising. So we can point to all the pressure points where the general economy is, is feeling the pinch. But at the same time, we have a very tight labor market. Unemployment is remaining low. We just saw the JOLTS report, which jolted the market, no pun intended. The economy continues to be pretty resilient. And you wonder if a company that wants to lay off people, to what degree they actually will, if they are concerned about not being able to rehire those people in a tight labor market, right? I, that's anecdotal. I don't have any data to back that up, but I, I could see how companies might think twice about saying, okay, let's cut our workforce. We can always hire them back. And remember, we lost about 3 million people out of the labor market during COVID, that people who left the labor force. So other than big layoffs, I don't know what the catalyst would be for a recession here, right? The households or consumers, their debt profile looks a lot better, right? We had a bubble in 08, the housing bubble, the financial crisis, and balance sheets by households as a percentage of GDP have only improved since then. And then they got worse. And really, it's the government sector that has continued to build its debt, but they're, they can print money and they can uh, run deficits as they are doing. So for the households, for the consumer, they're employed, labor is having some pricing power for the first time in many years. And we can talk about the pendulum of labor versus capital. Other than people losing their jobs, I don't know what it's going to do. And maybe that is the next shoe that's going to drop, but it certainly hasn't dropped yet. I think it was the Roosevelt administration and probably more so like Truman Eisen. U.S. dollar, strong dollar policy. That's our position. Every administration has talked about that. It was the Trump administration that oddly enough pointed out that, you know what, the dollar's too strong. I mentioned that because people hear that and say, wait, a strong dollar should be a good thing. And it is. That mitigates inflation to a certain degree. But a strong dollar is a wrecking ball for the rest of the world. So what do you make of the strength of the dollar here? The dollar has been quite strong, even though the dollar's share of global foreign exchange reserves continues to decline. People in crypto land talk about de-dollarization, and to some degree, they are correct. The share of global reserves is now 58%, I think, so that's less than it was, but it's still the majority. And ultimately, the dollar is driven by interest rate differentials. I mean, it's driven by other things as well. But all central banks were getting more and more accommodative going 
since the financial crisis and then obviously during the pandemic as well. And the Fed has led the charge in terms of resetting or normalizing that policy. The ECB has been close behind, but not as fast. So when you look at the dollar versus the euro, and you know, it's a relatively stable relationship. But on the other side of the spectrum, we got the Bank of Japan still pursuing these yield caps. And you see the yen is at close to 150 now. So the dollar against the yen is very strong. And the same thing with the Chinese uh, RMB, which trades in a fixed band, but those bands can be adjusted because the People's Bank of China or the PBOC has been easing policy because the economy there has been kind of a mess. So when you think about the dollar, it really depends on what the counterpart is to the dollar. But I think the fact that the Fed has led the charge in normalizing policy and has now clearly sent a message that it's going to stay higher for longer. We saw we had the FOMC meeting a few weeks ago and the Fed didn't change rates, but it did move the 2024 dots. And to me, that was sort of a can you hear me now type of message because the market has been expecting this pivot for a year now and the Fed keeps saying, no, we're not going to pivot until inflation is is back to where we want it. So I, I think that is part of the dollar strength. And there's also another theory out there that holds that you have very tight monetary policy and very loose fiscal policy. And we know that in Washington, they're running a deficit of about 8% of GDP during an expansion, right? Keynesianism says that you're supposed to run deficits during recessions and surpluses during expansions. And they did not get that memo in Washington. But there's a, a school of thought out there that says that fiscal looseness combined with monetary tightness, which is what raises rates, is really a very potent combination for the dollar because that looseness creates growth and that tightness creates positive real yields compared to the rest of the world. And that's what's driving the dollar as well. When you think of the concentration, again, in in those large tech stocks, they also have a lot of exposure to a strong dollar overseas. And many of the things that have expanded, let's say their valuations, are things that actually, if you think about AI, might not be able to be sold to a large part of that overseas market when you think of China too. So to me, I actually think there's a lot of risk there embedded in the concentration and the enthusiasm about that nifty seven or or whatever you want to call them. But I'll just say this, and I hope, Yurian, again, we appreciate you coming back on the pod. We hope that you didn't think we were leading the witness a little bit with some of our, let's say, glass half empty sort of questioning. We do really appreciate what seems to be a very sober outlook by you. And it does seem like there are many ways that the Fed might be able to land the plane, that the economy might avoid the worst case scenarios. And I just want to leave you with this. And you might find this interesting. I just came up from a talk. I saw Arthur Brooks, who's an author. He's a professor up there at Harvard Business School. And he just wrote this book, Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. It was just at our good friend, First Mark's CEO Summit. And there was a quote that I wrote down, guy. This is for you because you were brought up Wall Street. What can go wrong will go wrong. Right. And so I just I thought this was fa- fascinating. He said, give thanks to your negativity. It keeps you alive. So if at very least our negative questions about the economy and about the markets, maybe understanding them and hearing your answers to the to this sort of line of questioning will help keep your portfolio alive, people. So Yuri and Timmer, we really appreciate you uh, rejoining us on the pod. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. 
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.